every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Friday, the 15th of December, at the end of what's been an important week for the financial markets, the global economy, and the environment. We've got the main stories covered this morning on Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the European Central Bank maintained interest rates at multi-year highs for the second consecutive meeting and said it still has work to be done to tame price pressures. The main refinancing operations rate remained at a 22-year high of 4.5%, while the deposit facility rate was held steady at an all-time record high of 4%. During the press conference, ECB President Christine Lagarde told reporters that policymakers didn't discuss any rate cuts. She pushed back against market expectations for it to cut rates as early as March, saying we should absolutely not lower our guard against inflationary pressures. The Bank of England also diverged from the Fed in its outlook for future rate cuts. The UK Central Bank held its rate unchanged at a 15-year high of 5.25% in its December meeting yesterday, as expected, but signalled that interest rates must remain higher for an extended period of time to bring inflation down, and it left open the option of further rate rises if necessary. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority maintained its base rate at 5.75% on Thursday, hours after the US Federal Reserve left its benchmark rate unchanged for the third consecutive meeting. The HKMA said the market generally interpreted the Fed's decision as interest rates nearing the peak, with a slightly larger extent of rate cuts next year than previously expected. Fed Fund's futures markets are pricing 77% odds for at least a 25 basis rate cut in March 2024, and a total of 150 basis points of rate cuts by the end of 2024. The International Energy Agency lifted its oil demand forecast for next year. World oil consumption will rise by 1.1 million barrels per day in 2024, the IEA said in a monthly report. The IEA also said OPEC Plus now controls barely half of global oil production as demand growth slows drastically and US output reaches new highs. On today's programme, I'm joined by Corinne Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. And if you have any questions or comments, please post them on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, and I'll try and read them out during the show. Alternatively, you can post them on Facebook. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page. And on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. The decision from the Fed on Wednesday lit a fire under US stocks and bonds. The Dow pushed further into record territory Thursday, a day after closing above 37,000 for the first time ever, while the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq traded at levels not seen in nearly two years. The 30-stock Dow closed at another record high, ending the day up 158 points, or 0.4%, at 37,248. The S&P 500 gained a third of a percent to end the day at 4,720. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.2% to 14,762. The small cap Russell 2000 index surged 2.7% and is up over 6% in the past two days. 
the yield on the 10-year US Treasury note dropped below 4% Thursday to its lowest since late July, as markets anticipate that the Federal Reserve will cut rates next year. The 10-year yield fell 11 basis points to 3.92% after tumbling 18 basis points the previous day. The US dollar index fell 0.9% to just below 102 on Thursday, sliding to its lowest level in four and a half months. The yen that surged 0.9% to 141.81. That's the highest level since late July after rising 1.7% on Wednesday. The Chinese yuan rose 0.9% to a six-month high of 7.1088 renminbi in Shanghai. And the price of gold continued to rally Thursday towards new all-time highs. Spot gold climbed another half a percent to $2,036 an ounce. The precious metal reached a record high of $2,135 at the beginning of December. And palladium also exploded higher. It was up almost 12% in the biggest daily jump since March 2020. Brent crude oil saw a surge 3.2% to settle at $76.61 per barrel on Thursday. And in Hong Kong, shares rebounded from a 13-month low as the Hong Kong Monetary Authority kept its base rate unchanged. The Hang Seng Index climbed 132 points, or 0.8%, to 16,361, pulling back from an earlier gain of as much as 2.2%. The Shanghai Composite gave up early gains of around 0.6% to close a third of a percent lower at 2,959. And this morning, looks like the Hang Seng's going to open about 220 points higher. That's 1.3%. The index set to start the morning at 16,620. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Let's welcome our guests on this Friday morning. We have with us Corrine Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. Morning, Corrine. Good morning. And also with us is Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. Morning to you, Louisa. Uh, Morning, Peter. I'd like to start with the COP28 summit, if I may. A new deal was agreed at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai after days of negotiations. For the first time, the deal calls on all countries to move away from using fossil fuels, but not to phase them out, something many governments wanted. The latest proposal, published by the summit hosts, which was the UAE, called for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade. so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Um, Corinne, I'm interested in your reaction. How, how do you feel about uh, the outcome? Are, are you pleased? Are you disappointed? What are your thoughts on it? Wow! Yes, it was indeed uh, quite uh, quite a very, I mean, quite an interesting uh, COP for sure. I think like. And I would just repeat what I've, I've, I've heard people saying because I thought it was actually very wise to say it's both historic and at the same time, it's insufficient. It's historic because, as you rightly said, Peter, it is actually uh, uh, very, very good that the fact that, you know, f- transitioning away from, from fossil fuel was mentioned. And it's the first time in 28 years of, of climate uh, negotiations. So for sure, this is very positive, especially when you consider the fact that the, the COP28 was held in the UAE, that the head of the COP28 is a uh, 
oil and gas executive that there were like up to 2000 people there which were basically oil and gas sector lobbyists and mm. uh, so in in that sense it is really uh, quite something and let's put it this way as well uh, if we had not reached an agreement where this would have been mentioned, then we will all be probably very depressed now and very sad because uh, that was basically making sure that we killed all hope to reach this 1.5 degree scenario, which was agreed on in Paris in 2015. So, uh, so that's the positive side. Unfortunately, uh, no one can really be really happy because it's not enough. It's insufficient. And why is it insufficient? Because, well, for, for basically uh, one reason is that, you know, first of all, one reason is that usually these commitments are not always followed through by, by real action. And we've seen that in the past. So uh, there was actually a commitment two years ago, for instance, to, uh, to do the same regarding coal. And we have not seen any kind of significant uh, decrease increase in, in uh, coal consumption or, or coal production. Uh, but the um, uh, it's also insufficient because, as you said, there was no specifically phase out uh, as such. And there are many loopholes that might enable basically both the production and consumption of fossil fuel to continue. So um, we are uh, in a situation where basically really make this 1.5 degree scenario uh, achievable, we need to cut emissions by 2030 by 43%. That's a mm -hmm. massive, mm -hmm. uh, massive number. And if you look at what's been agreed upon, is that basically, first of all, we have to believe that it will happen. Secondly, uh, it's, it's actually not enough because you need, this would probably, uh, I mean, estimates vary, but this should be able to produce some kind of 30% of the reductions needed. So we need much more. And then we also need a lot more money to go into this, which is also uh, another aspect, but maybe we can discuss that a bit later. Yep, sure. Let me, let me first of all, get Louise's thoughts um, on this. And maybe you want to give a sort of a, a market reaction to it as well. But, but how do you feel um, at, at the end of that summit? It was obviously very contentious. Um, there, there were uh, people threatening to walk out of the meeting if the, uh, if the deal wasn't strengthened. What are your thoughts, Louisa? Um, I think coming from the investment perspective, I think uh, this uh, move or, or the um, uh, ESG theme definitely opened up a whole new perspective or some new um, uh, investment opportunities for investors. Uh, from the perspective um, like renewables, uh, from the perspective um, to some extent like um, uh, new energy vehicles. So I think um, all in all, um, the the emerging of um, these will actually raise awareness of the ESG perspective, not just from investor, but also from corporates. And uh, at the same time, uh, open up some more um longer term structurally positive uh, investable sectors for investors. Tell me a little bit about this difference, um, which a lot was made of between moving away from using fossil fuels as opposed to phasing them out, which many governments wanted to see there. Is this a, um, a difference without a meaning or is it actually something important here as opposed you know, moving away from fossil fuels but not phasing them out? Mm. Well, looking back to this, uh, my point saying that uh, everything is in the words uh, and at the same time, nothing is in the words. I mean, mm -hmm. what we really need to see is real action. 
And uh, uh, back to the, the topic about, you know, financing, for instance, I mean, uh, basically, uh, more, much more money need to go into uh, transition uh, mitigation. And uh, today we have, uh, we don't have enough money going into that. So uh, you need to, if you look at the, even though, I mean, again, the, we have, we have some uh, positive um, trends in terms of, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the amount of uh, green financing compared to financing of, of uh, fossil fuel. Uh, but, but that, that I'm back to the, what I was saying is that we just need much more. Uh, so in the words, if you do see just transitioning away, uh, that kind of imp implies some kind of a more gradual uh, movement. And then again, maybe not uh, a bit less accountability. If you actually say phase out, it means, you know, we, we need to stop eventually extracting oil and gas and coal. Mm -hmm. So uh, that also means that for any company still planning, you know, you know CapEx into uh, extracting, I mean, finding new, new places to extract oil and gas, uh, this would be very hard to finance. Uh, whereas... Uh, the, the alternative we have today is we're saying, yeah, yeah, you know, you should you should do less. So if you think about somebody who's just have a, you know, a alcohol problem, it's exactly the, the same thing of saying, no, no, you need to cut all alcohol to, you know, just keep, just reduce your, your amount uh, every day. And of course, if you do have an addiction problem, uh, we all know that, uh, I mean, reducing is, is better, of course, than increasing, but but it's not going to really solve your problem. Are we running out of time? Um, the Pacific Island countries will say probably, yes, they, they are aren't they? Because they're already feeling uh, the, the drastic effects of climate change and they can't wait too long uh, for countries to slowly move away from using fossil fuels at their own pace, which could in some cases be quite slow. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, these, these small island states, uh, and I had the, um, the honor of, of meeting one of their representatives at the UNPRI in person, big conference in Japan a couple of months ago. For them, it's an existential crisis. They're a bit like the canary in the mind for the world, because mm. uh, we, of course, like, for instance, when you live in Hong Kong, we don't have to feel threatened as such by, for instance, sea level rise, uh, uh, except for maybe some people very close to, uh, to the seashore. But you saw what we've had uh, in September in terms of uh, torrential rains and the damages that it has caused. So everywhere uh, in the world, uh, regardless of where you are, uh, we are already victims of, of climate change and we know it's going to get worse. But one thing to always keep in mind, which I, I tell anybody around me when, because it gets you know very depressing thinking, okay, we're doomed and there's nothing to do and everything. There is a lot of things to do to start with. As Wiza was saying as well, there are a lot of actually even investment opportunities in things related to this climate change um, uh, mitigation and even climate change adaptation. But secondly, eventually it's not like binary like oh we reach 1.5 oh we're good and mm -hmm. we don't reach 1.5 we this is going to be horrible uh, because any small amount of extra uh, temperature increase has a huge impact on actual climate risk effects so we just need to work very very hard to make sure that we limit the climate change um, the, the the temperature increase and uh, and and keep hoping for it otherwise we will be doomed so there's a lot to do and there's a lot that a lot of people can do. Okay. Well, look, let's move on because we've got quite a lot of things going on um, at the moment. Uh, Chinese stocks have fallen after um, a disappointing economic work conference. Hong Kong and mainland A shares fell this week. Um, 
After um, investors expressed disappointment with the outcome of this year's economic work conference, which sets economic targets for the coming year, state media reported that China will focus on making concerted efforts to expand domestic demand in 2024 without adding further detail to various multipoint plans already announced. And they said favourable conditions outweigh unfavourable factors in China's development, suggesting that officials don't see any urgency to take more aggressive steps to support the economy. Um, Louisa, this has had a big impact on markets this week. First of all, what are your thoughts on the Economic Work Conference? Did it deliver um, or are you disappointed? Um, put it this way, I think let's take a step back and, and think about what this uh, Central Econo- Economic Work Conference is. Um, it's a high-level policy meeting by senior government officials. So um, the key to watch out for is setting the policy tone. Uh, rather than announcing specific measures. Um, So setting that stage, I would say that uh, the policy tone for this year, um, Central Economic Work Conference, is still a pro-growth tone, uh, which is probably um, similar to what it was back in 2021 and 22. The difference is that uh, the execution afterwards for that, uh, for instance, in 2021, it was distorted by the COVID outbreak, especially the the zero COVID uh, control in Shanghai, which has affected uh, economic activities. So what to watch out for after this uh, setting this pro growth economic tone would be the execution, i.e. the policies measures. Well, I can understand that market has been eagerly awaiting for some stimulus measures uh, to revive and supporting growth, more specifically addressing the property uh, markets. Uh, slow down as well. So um, the disappointment could come from the fact that that's probably um, not much concrete plans that are being um, highlighted or mentioned. But from this perspective, uh, the reading that I will take away is that we could probably expect more uh, accommodative monetary policy because this year round, if you look through the script and the readout, um, it is probably the first time that it addressed price target, i.e taking inflation and also deflation risk into considerations. Uh, Secondly, uh, from a physical policy perspective, um, again, though um, not much uh, detail has been announced based on the pro-growth tone, it could expect that um, the physical policy will still be supportive, i.e. the focus will be on the use of local government special bonds quotas, etc. And lastly, in terms of real estate, I think uh, many would have noted that the phrase housing is for living, not for speculation has not been mentioned. Mm. Uh, Versus last year, it was mentioned, but how is that going to uh, translate into policy and execution? I think that's the key to watch out for, especially for the fact that um, housing sales is still quite subdued. Uh, We are still seeing year-on-year contraction. Um, We haven't seen much uh, meaningful recovery as yet, Uh, not to mention we are seeing still a set of mixed um, macro data. For instance, the latest money supply and credit data, I I would say is probably unexcited. Uh, More concerning is the money supply growth, especially for M1. Uh, It's now sliding close to 1% year-on-year growth, which is probably the low um, over the past uh, decade. I think we did 
dip into negative territory, but that was back in um, 2022 first quarter. Like what I've mentioned, it was distorted by uh, by the zero COVID activities. Yeah. Um, Karine, what, do you get the feeling that growth has been promoted back, uh, economic growth promoted back above in the agenda this year? Because in the past, they've sort of down um, downplayed that, haven't they? That economic growth mm. wasn't the most important thing. Quality of growth was more important. Financial stability uh, was certainly important. But obviously, the economy has suffered um, uh, Well, some mm. people would say suffered quite considerably. But um, so is, is growth back on the agenda now? Mm. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I, um, East Capital, originally, we were only specializing in emerging and uh, frontier markets in, in Eastern Europe. When I moved to China, uh, first to Shanghai and then Hong Kong, so like 13 years ago, uh, we, uh, if I'm considering all this time, I've been active in, in China, there's been one thing that has not changed and one thing that has really changed. One that has not changed is still that Chinese market is, compared to many other, especially emerging markets, very much policy driven. So you do need to spend time analyzing uh, where the, 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 the wind is blowing uh, because it does have an impact on, on mm-hmm. market for sure. But one thing that has changed is that we used to really have like when there's big problem, it means big stimulus. So people were like just I, not happy to have problems, but almost kind of thinking, okay, well, anyway, uh, we, it's going to be taken care of and there's going to be a lot of inv- investment and it's going to be all positive. And this has really changed. Uh, and it's normal because the Chinese economy uh, has other issues first to deal with, which is a bit of like a hangover uh, uh, thing regarding, of course, all the debt that has been accumulated in, in the system. And also the Chinese um, policymakers uh, just have a more nuanced and fine-tuned approach uh, to make sure that uh, the ship is, is going uh, steadily. So uh, I think, I mean, Luisa's analysis of the consequence of the result of the Central Economic Work Conference were, was great. So I, I don't really have anything to add here, but I'm just saying myself is that we are, uh, first of all, I see two things that there is definitely more priorities on, on, on science and tech than we had before. And it's all very mm-hmm. good. This should become the next growth driver of China. And what we're seeing here in terms of, uh, you know, high end products, such as anything related to, uh, uh, to uh, electric vehicles or, or clean tech, uh, it's, it's really where the, the, you know, we can see more investments and more, more, uh, growth than, than, uh, in, in many other parts of the Chinese economy. But unfortunately, it's still only 8% of GDP, whereas this real estate sector is, is enormous. It's mm. still around 30% of GDP, which is, which is, you know, twice as much as if you look at the, the size of the, um, the US uh, real estate sector compared to the US economy, or, uh, you know, almost five times more than, than the, the, the equivalent in, in India. But the, uh, the, the problem is that, I mean, I think it's going to be actually great for the world to have this kind of products becoming cheaper. Uh, look at the, um, for instance, the price of uh, solar panels that are down like 47% mm. uh, only this year. But it's not necessarily good for investors uh, because these are sectors where we do see a lot of still state support. We have a strong growth mentality, meaning that, you know, they are ready to just put a lot of money without really thinking about profitability. It has created overcapacity issues and so forth. So it's not an easy market for investors to navigate in. But I think for the Chinese growth as such, uh, this will all be, I mean, we really need to to uh, to focus on, on these sectors as being the, the next uh, uh, growth drivers. 
And Louisa, this has been a terrible market really to navigate for investors this year, hasn't it? The Hang Seng Index down 4% so far in December. It's now slumped for four straight months since July. And the index is down over 17% this year. It's raised over 630 billion US dollars in market value. That's the worst performer among all the global major stock indices. And the Hang Seng is heading for a fourth year of, of losses now, the longest losing streak in the gauge's history. But I'm wondering, what, what are your thoughts going forward? forward. Um, That's all in the past. Do you see uh, maybe Chinese stocks as a good value play now or is it too early? Um, I I think the way to look at uh, next year, I I think is two major category of uh, driving forces that I will look into. Uh, First of all, from the external part, um, that's including like the US rates outlook um, and also like geopolitics uh, that has been um, uh, uh, highly discussed topics for Chinese equities market. Um, put it this way, I think uh, from the from this perspective, I think we are heading into probably a rate cut um, uh, 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 cycle going into next year rather than this year we're still talking about rate highs. Um, that's definitely supportive for risky asset class, not just for Chinese equities, but global equities market as a whole. Um, in terms of geopolitics, um, the ongoing dialogue will definitely soothe investor con- um, concerns, but definitely bear in mind that we are having a pretty uh, heavy uh, elections year going in 2024. Uh, and Chinese, China China topic is always one of the key discussion topic during like US presidential election. So I think that it's still... Um, every now and then, uh, uh, it could come back to the radar screen of uh, investor concerns. Now, looking into another set of consideration factor that will be more internal, that's mainly um, economic growth and corporate earnings growth. Now, from this perspective, like what we have highlighted, I think um, so far the macro data is still mixed. What's concerning is like potential deflationary pressure or mm-hmm. deflationary risk. Um, uh, real estate, I think many of the media and other speakers would have mentioned. So that's why uh, when we talk about CEWC just now, we do see that execution is the key. So what are exactly the measures that going to um, handle uh, looking into the real estate market to revive it and to support growth would be the key. Now, second sets would be corporate earnings growth. Uh, from this perspective, I, I still see consensus um, estimate is still probably on the high side, which is still looking at uh, low teens uh, year-on-year corporate earnings growth for 2024 for Chinese equities market. Um, I, I think there's probably a bit more on the optimistic side, and I do see the risk probably on the downside as we are approaching um, to uh, the results announcement season. Are uh, probably more comfortable to see that revised down to um, at least um, high high single digit level. So what it means is that. Uh, the, as a market, probably like what Peter you've mentioned, uh, but it doesn't mean that there's no investable um uh, sector or stocks. For instance, uh, this year, uh, the global uh AI um uh uh spree or, or catching the attention did uh spill over to this part of the world and also to um the Chinese uh, market. And now I think another thing um to definitely worth looking at is some of the traditional 
um, uh, high yield plays uh, will be back into focus, given that uh, we are seeing finally uh, the U.S. 10-year uh, um, government bond yield um, edging down uh, to around 4%, and we do uh, forecast that it will continue to trend uh, lower going into next year. Uh, at Bank of Singapore, we do expect that uh, the 10-year treasury, treasury yields to fall to 3.25% uh, going into next year. So what it says is uh, basically revive the focus of some of the traditional uh, dividend, uh, high dividend yield play. Uh, just take an example. Uh, for instance, Hong Kong Utilities, uh, it used to be regarded as one of the high yield dividend play, but uh, with uh, the U.S. is rate uh, going on to a rate high cycle, the yield spread, um, uh, it, it doesn't really work for Hong Kong dividend, uh, Hong Kong utilities um, as a sector, uh, given that uh, the, the yield is probably not attractive enough. But if we are looking at the yield spread for the sector, uh, which is currently at more than like, 300 basis points versus an average about 130 basis points. Um, so we can start seeing um, uh, companies or sectors like this will probably getting uh, uh, back to the interest of investor um, on the back of the uh, rate cut cycle alongside with some of the growth stocks um, that mm. uh, investors are looking into. Okay. Well, Corinne, the, the central banks are very much in play at the moment, aren't they? We're in an interesting situation now where we've had a dramatic turnaround from the Fed after saying only at the last meeting that rate cuts weren't even on the table. They're now suddenly talking about three rate cuts uh, next year. But then we have the ECB and the Bank of England saying, whoa, hang on, we're, we're not ready at all uh, to, to cut rates. They're going to stay high for, uh, for longer. Um, so some yes. interesting divergences going on now. Yes, there is. But clearly, of course, uh, as always, uh, the US is and the Fed is the one that people listen to or want to listen to. Uh, so it was definitely uh, created really like a risk on sentiment. And uh, even though, I mean, I think most people were expecting some some rate cuts, but, uh, uh, you know, most investors uh, now were actually really happy to hear that uh, it could be as well that many and and more clarity in in uh, in this direction and it's of course i mean it's extremely important uh, as such we we um we just ourselves uh, um, published our annual uh, sorry our annual outlook and we specifically call it for emerging markets you know emerging from the rates storm uh, because for for emerging markets it has a, a huge impact i mean we companies we we uh, uh, we invest in and talk to they they tell us you know they are really increasingly paying a lot of money on on interest and mm -hmm. uh, and they've been scaling back investments because return is not sufficient given given higher cost of debt so that that's going to be very important we also see of course like you know um, the, um, the there is just the, the US dollar strength is has been one of the primary impediments to uh, to uh, emerging market performance because it's just even due to this translation translation impacts as the earning growth gets lower in uh, in US dollar. So uh, considering what's happening in the US, we're going to see definitely a steeper decline in central bank rates in emerging markets, and it's going to be very positive. I wanted to add as well, specifically related to, to China, is that uh, even though there are, of course, a number of issues and concerns, and, and still a lot of, and as Riza was rightly putting it, uh, the geopolitics uh, picture is not going to get easier next year, With also starting with the, the elections in Taiwan, and uh, at the end of the year in, in the US, 
but but the Chinese market, like many other other emerging markets, they you know it does not take much for the market to move if the sentiment were just to improve slightly. And uh, that's I mean what we've seen, for instance, in the beginning of the year after uh, in China, where after you know basically when when the the COVID policies were. Uh, withdrawn, it, it, the market took off and and uh, was up like basically sixty percent in in U.S. terms in just three months from November 2022 to January 2023. So we, I think, uh, as the valuations are as well very low now in in China, we've got uh, uh, like a price to earnings ratio of nine. Uh, that's and that's you know like even for the for if I'm not talking about Hong Kong shares and the average for ten years is eleven and and in general emerging markets as well asset class uh, is is uh, very attractively valued uh, as I'm saying I don't think it's going to take much for uh, for the market to uh, uh, the market could really uh, boost uh, be boosted by uh, by this uh, more supportive uh, monetary trajectory from the U S and uh, in a number of domestic uh, growth drivers that we were mentioning together today. Um, Louisa, final word from you then. What what could be the catalyst to spark um, a a big jump in uh, in China's markets? Is is bond yields sliding? You said you thought the 10-year was going to get down to three and a quarter percent. That's quite a big move. I mean, we're just below 4% now, but we was at 5% a a month or so ago. So is uh, sliding bond yields, is that going to do it and get uh, Chinese markets going? Um, I would still see that growth is still matters in a sense that proving that the, the economy is reviving. And as uh, as we uh, have just been discussing, I think like tier one cities, Beijing and Shanghai just announced a series of uh, property policy uh, relaxation. Uh, in a nutshell, is uh, cutting the down payment requirement ratios, uh, uh, so on and so forth. But uh, looking at previous example, for instance, in Shenzhen and some other uh, tier one studies. Um, I think uh, the the move probably uh, just by looking at cutting the down payment, it could help um, uh, support uh, some uh, uh, housing demand maybe, but it could potentially like short lift it like two or three months. So we do need to see alongside with that uh, other series of um, uh, factors that in play. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what investors really focus on is is uh, after the supportive uh, macro environment, i.e. more from the U.S. Uh, or, or the, going into a rate cut cycle, um, it's really growth that's matter, whether it's the macro and also at the company level as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts. Have a great weekend. You heard there Louisa Fock, who is China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore, and Corinne Hearn, who's Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. <laughs> I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Well, what an interesting set of central bank meetings we've had uh, this week. The US Federal Reserve um, held benchmark interest rates unchanged in the five and a quarter to five and a half percent range. But the big story uh, is suddenly they're talking about three interest rate cuts next year, um, which have really come out of the blue. Um, but the ECB and the Bank of England are very much saying uh, rate, rate cuts are off the table. Um, what, what's prompted this big change, do you think, from the Fed? Because it is rather dramatic isn't it? I thought it was quite dramatic and uh, a little bit like an early Christmas present uh, for the markets. And markets had been sort of leading into it and actually had probably preempted the Fed move. So 
uh, rarely, I wouldn't say rarely, but often the market doesn't quite get it right. But this time they were spot on that the Fed were going to pivot uh, in its uh, in its view on on the future rate cycle and actually put in a dot plot for 75 bips of of uh, easing next year and another 100 bips by 2025. Um, clearly, um, the inflation picture for them is is uh, on target to reduce towards the target of 2% over the medium term by 2026. So that gave them comfort. The economy is slowing, but, um, but not falling off a cliff. Um, I think they feel quite comfortable to be able to make this announcement given what they can see in the forecast. Um, so that Goldilocks scenario, that soft landing scenario seems to be playing out. And I'm always someone who feels a bit contrarian in these areas to say, oh, where are the holes that we can punch in that, uh, in that story? At the moment, it's looking pretty good story mm. for the Fed. But I, I'm sort of wondering what has changed in a couple of weeks. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, Jerome Powell was telling everyone that it was premature to conclude with confidence that we've achieved a sufficiently restrictive stance. They were his comments um, in, in one of the in, in one of the the, um, the the speeches he gave. He also said it was too early to speculate on when policy might ease. But then suddenly, two weeks later, um, we're talking about three rate cuts, and I'm sort of wondering what has changed since then because if anything the economic data um, has actually got better hasn't it um, you know the uh, inflation's coming down uh, the job markets is, is still tight um, so there's nothing really been there in the data to suddenly make you think my goodness we've got to start cutting now yeah I, I, I think you're right to the extent that you would assume that they would shift that language if they felt that the economy was a, was was going to slow dramatically i.e you know, they were going to need to ease to to fill the gap on as aggregate demand so maybe and again i you know only speculating here that that maybe they read the the forward estimates in terms of of how the economy will play out in the second you know in the, in, in the early part of next year um but i feel also that they they think that maybe they might have overcooked potentially on the upside um you know in the aggressive move to cut the inflationary picture and now they're saying okay we actually don't need to sustain rates at five and a quarter um, over the medium term, we can bring them back without actually changing the trajectory of the economy too dramatically. Mm. So, again, it's purely speculation. Maybe they've just reassessed on the on the basis of the forward data that they're looking at. Inflation, supply-side inflation's gone, and, in fact, there's probably deflationary to some extent. Energy prices have come off. Um, against that, the economy and the labour market's still pretty tight. So, on balance, they're saying, well, five and a quarter, um, we could probably dial that back to help throttle the economy through maybe a softer period um, by reducing 75 bips. Again, that's uh, nothing's particularly changed. It's maybe just how they, they look at how they want to communicate to the market. The problem is the market is running away from them now, isn't it? Because having um, been out of sync with the markets and now sort of trying to move towards market expectations with 75 basis points of rate cuts, the markets are now predicting um, 150 basis points of rate cuts uh, next <laughs> year. So they've still got a long way to go now to meet the markets. Now, I think the market's got ahead of itself, that's clear, um, but it's hard-pressed to see it doing too big a puncture hole in the momentum of equity markets and bond markets. I'd say they probably get some profit-taking uh, over the course of the rest of this month. It's had a fairly good run. But generally speaking, you would, as you would assume, basis the parameters that they've set, basis the data that we're seeing, that it'd be hard-pressed to be a big seller of equities over the next three to four months. Um, and, you know, the bond market, market should continue to be a, a, a bit of a tailwind as well. 
Mm. So on that basis, yeah, markets are ahead of the game, as they often are. But I think even with a bit of a pullback, they're going to stay pretty positive. Mm. You you wonder if something could happen that could cause a, a very sharp reversal in the bond markets because at the moment um, the, the, the moves are quite dramatic, aren't they? We were at over 5% yeah. just a month ago. Now we're below 4% and there are some fund managers saying we're heading for 3% on the 10-year. Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I, that, that would surprise me dramatically. I'm actually pretty surprised by the move we've had so far, Pete, but um, I suspect we'll see a little bit of a profit taking in, in the bond market. But of course, as you know, the, the bonds rallying, that helps the equity market as well. So right now, I just think that we've probably overshot a little bit the best. We've got the best of the news out. You know, it's almost like there's no bad news uh, on the horizon. But that, that gives me pause. As mm. most uh, people who watch markets closely, as soon as you start getting too confident about what's happening, <laughs> yeah. it'll grab you. <laughs> the, the markets come and bite you, don't they? What, what about the ECB yes. and the Bank of England? They're sort of also on hold, uh, but giving a very different message, aren't they? I mean, Christine Lagarde was very clear uh, that they weren't even discussing uh, rate cuts and they've got to stay vigilant uh, because inflation's still too high. Very similar message from the Bank of England as well, that they weren't considering rate cuts either. So they're, um, although they're both all on hold, a uh, very different message. Yeah, and good for the euro. Um, you know, you saw the euro move and the dollar weakness. Um, I suspect it's just the timing, you know, that the cycle, uh, the US were, were leading, so they're coming out of that. I think the ECB, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Lagarde was really quite strong in her language about saying they didn't even discuss rate cuts. Um, and I think that's probably, if you, if you draw a line to where the Fed were two or three months ago, that was exactly the same type of language. So it's more about a timing. And then the Bank of England, they've still got a stickier inflation situation than what the US has. So it's pretty clear that the the Bank of England aren't going to countenance any any dovishness over the next uh, quarter. And uh, and what you'll see in terms of market moves is really what you're seeing in the dollar. You know, uh, uh, US dollar indexes drop quite sharply. Um, That's reflective of, of the bond markets as well. But the euro and the yen and the pound will probably find some firmness over the coming months. And we've got the Bank of Japan meeting next week. They're in a bit of a quandary, really, aren't they? Because uh, they're talking about raising rates, but uh, the economic data is just not helping uh, helping them in, in that respect at all. No. When, uh, yeah, there was always a talk that next year is going to be the end of yield curve control for the Bank of Japan, but maybe they're just going to have to delay that a little longer. Um, for, yeah, um, but essentially... I think that uh, they're going to be on hold, but they might start pivoting towards the dropping the yield curve control. They used some language towards that last meeting, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they say this meeting. And what about in Australia? What's the situation uh, there? The Reserve Bank has been pretty uh, strident, hasn't it, about uh, being vigilant for, for inflation. But I did notice in, inflation expectations dropped to the lowest in almost two years. And you've also got a jobless rate now, the highest in one and a half years. Is that going to change uh, the considerations for the RBA? No, I think the RBA pretty clear that they, they moved. They were probably a little behind the curve. And hence, we saw a couple of months ago a 25 basis point hike. I think they, they're yet to, to talk on a pivot back to a lower rate trajectory at this stage. Um, the dynamics in Australia are slightly different. We're, we're probably a bit behind in terms of uh, the relative rate structure to the US. The economy is going pretty well. Even though we had a rise in unemployment, there were 57,000 jobs created. So it's just sort of a mixed uh, a release yesterday. 
uh, inflation expectations are coming down, but they've still got a fair way to go. And, and as most people say, when it comes to getting the fight of inflation, the last bit's the hardest. The supply side of the equation of cost push inflation is gone, but the demand pull inflation is still there. Uh, and that stickiness will probably keep them on a very much that restrictive policy um, stance uh, going into the new year. So from a market perspective next year, do you stick with um, the, the, the current trend, which is that if bond yields are going to come down uh, and, and keep on falling, this is going to be good for equities, it's going to be good for gold, uh, not good for, uh, for the US dollar? Yeah, well, that, that seems to be the, the first, first quarter view, you know, uh, actually talking to a couple of fund managers here, you know, we're trying to punch holes in this whole Goldilocks scenario, to, you know, as a, you know, being a contrarian by nature, trying to see what we've got wrong, but it's hard pressed to see that scenario not playing out at least for the first quarter of next year, short of any data that, you know, changes the picture or short of something happening that we're not uh, uh, yet aware um, the dynamics would appear to be quite su- supportive for equities and bonds over the over at least the short term, um, but of course you know data data comes out over the uh, over the course of the coming months and maybe what we may see if the Fed's pivoted its language maybe we'll see some some softer data uh, that the Fed are reading into the economy that maybe uh, we're not seeing so far. Okay, Toby, always good to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. And thank you for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. Providing a view from mainland China will be Brock Silvers, CIO at Kyan Capital. Have a great weekend. Money Talk.